Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money Making Conversations. Here we go. Welcome to Money Making Conversation. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. It's time to stop reading other people's success stories and really start writing your own. I always tell you, lead with your gifts and don't let your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. Those are the guests that I bring on my show. For you as a consumer and business owner, I'm giving you access to celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and people I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is... She's a celebrity, she's a CEO, she's an entrepreneur, and she truly is an industry decision maker. Her name is Deborah Martin Chase. She's the president and CEO of Martin Chase Productions. She's currently the executive producer of one of my favorite shows, The Equalizer, the TV series for CBS and Universal Studios starring my girl, Queen Latifah, that premiered on Super Bowl Sunday. The Equalizer currently airs Every Sunday, you can check it, 8 p.m. 7 Central, again on CBS. Now let's talk about Deborah Martin Chase. Entertainment industry icon, trailblazer, is the first African-American female producer to have a deal at any major studio ever. I was there. I was watching. That's when I was writing on sitcoms. I was going, who is she? Will I ever meet her? She's also the first African-American woman to produce a film that grossed over $100 million. That was Denzel's Washington Courage Under Fire. To date, her films have grossed over a half billion dollars at the box office. I only got two movies, you know, Think Like a Man, Think Like a Man too. I think I did $150 million, so I ain't close to her. About six years ago, nobody was interested in making movies about women or people of color. My, how the landscape has changed for black people and creatives in Hollywood. Please welcome the Monday making some conversation to talk about it, my friend and Houstonian, Deborah Martin Chase. <laughs> so thank you so much. Such kind words. Thank you. Well, first of all, the three, the, the like I'm Rashawn McDonald. Now, Deborah Martin Chase. How did it become three names? Chase. Well, that's the Houston part. Okay, okay. <laughs> Chase is the Houston part. I was married uh, when I got out of law school and moved to Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, and since it was the beginning of my career, I kept the chase. Okay. And, and as I told you, I still have great friends in Houston and a great love of the city. And it's all part of who I am. Well, part of who you are has been a person that, uh, like I said, I, my first sitcom job was with Steve Harvey on, uh, I think it was 93 on ABC, Me and the Boys. And then I did uh, Parenthood with Robert Townsend. In the meantime, you were already breaking grounds for a very successful career. And let's talk about, because you started out in law. I started right. out at yes. IBM. I was an IBM. My degree is in mathematics. So I can kind of relate to an extreme change because mine was math. At least yours was law, and it kind of correlates with, uh, you know, contracts and the business side that goes along with being an executive producer and a person who runs things behind the scenes. Talk about that transition, first about the law experience and then transitioning into Hollywood. Sure. Well, I, um, you know, my beloved late dad was the biggest film and television buff that I ever knew. And mm-hmm. so I grew up in a household where we watched films and we watched TV together. And I was that kid that went to the movie theater every Saturday and stayed until 
you know, my mother came to get me. Uh, but I didn't know anybody in the business. I didn't know anybody, certainly anybody who looked like me that was behind the scenes in Hollywood. And so I went to law school because, you know, I needed to prepare myself for the world. And, you know, I went to Harvard Law School and, and I started practicing law at big firms and big corporations. And I was a really good lawyer, but I didn't love it. Right. And I just figured, you know, if I'm going to work this hard, I should go after my dream, which was to make film and television. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I went, and when I left, I remember I was, I was in New York at the time and I was working at Avon products and <laughs> my friends were like, oh, you'll be back. You'll be back. But I was like, mm -mm, I, I'm, I'm going to give this my best shot. Here I am. Now, here's interesting because I'm going to skip around a little bit because I want to definitely get back to the equalizer and then talk about your career. Uh, roughly, I was reading this article. I think it was in uh, Hollywood Reporter. And it was talking about roughly six years ago, you know, the landscape was kind of frustrating for you. And you were considering other options other than entertainment. Am I correcting what I was reading? Yeah, absolutely. And so at, at that point, law was looking like an option again. And then yeah, all of a sudden, two things. I, I certainly considered it. You know, I got in this business because when I was growing up, I did not see people on screen who looked or felt like me. Right. And so I wanted to break down stereotypes. I wanted to to create images that would empower us and would help people to understand that, you know, they had the power to do whatever they wanted to do in life and to, and to make their own dreams come true. And there was a period in Hollywood, and you know, right. where... You know, people weren't interested in making movies about women, about people of color. It was all about the big tentpole movies and, and, and action movies. And I would walk into offices and people's eyes would glaze over <laughs> when I told mm -hmm. them, you know, what I was thinking about. And, I, and so then you just start throwing stuff up against the wall that has no meaning. And that's not how I work. That's not. To me, that's, that, that is not the, the road to success. And so I was kind of, I got to the point where I said, well, you know, maybe the universe is telling me that, you know, you've had a good run, but maybe it's time to think about doing something else. I, 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 honestly, this is a good story and it's true. And I spent about a year just talking to people because I'd had the luxury of being at Disney, um, you know, have my company based at Disney for, you know, 20 years right. and and I was thinking about what I should do and where I should go and Vernon Jordan you know who we just lost had mm -hmm. been a friend and an advisor of mine since I was 18 years old his his, his daughter's one of my best friends and and I went to go see Vernon as I often did and I told Vernon how I was feeling and I was thinking about doing other other things maybe going back to practice law and Vernon heard me very calmly, listened to me, pour my heart out. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you're too old to do anything else. You need to, you need to figure out you've invested a lot in yes. film and television and figure out how to make that work. And he was right. You know, it's really uh, interesting that because, uh, you know, when I left IBM and, you know, the whole thought process, you can go back, you know, you are, you you mastered the corporate space. That's always an option. But it really is about moving forward. That's all he's telling you. Going back with it. Well, why? Well, what's that? You know, a lot more confusion, a lot more unknown when you're great. You're fantastic now. But, but that was just one conversation. But what happened that really 
sent you forward in a positive direction that, yes, I can do this again. Yes, this is what I've been born to do. This is what this is my dream. There's a combination of realizing that there were stories that I still very much wanted to tell. And frankly, that the business, as I was going through my kind of soul searching process, the business started changing and Hollywood finally realized what you and I have been telling (laughs) it for, and many others have been telling it for years that diversity was not just the right thing to do, but that it was good business. And once Hollywood figured out, that there was money that was being left on the table mm-hmm. by not, you know, telling stories about people of color that, you know, people of all ethnicities, you know, white people, black people, Asian people would go see good stories about people of color and about women. It opened up the, 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 the door. And now it's, I mean, you know, it's still, we still have a long way to go. Right. But my God. I mean, look at the number of movies that have been made in the last few years. Look at what's going on in TV. It's really exciting. And so it's funny. And I, it took me about six years to get Harriet made. And Harriet kind of covered that territory from the beginning where people were like, oh, historical movie about a <laughs> black woman. I don't know. To, you know, towards the end, it was like, oh, yes, you know, hidden figures that happened. And that yes. made a lot of money. It was like they could see the potential of telling an action story right. about a woman of color. You know, it's really interesting so, because, you know, because you, you were like me. We were there. I'm a writer. You're a producer. You're a writer, too. And so from that standpoint, we went through that whole reality series, you know, where yes. black people, especially black women, were not featured in a very... Uh, favorable manner. He was fighting, cussing, drinking, partying. And so his hair out. Oh my God. So so with that process, I know you had to be really sick to your stomach that that period right there. And I'm not saying reality shows have changed that much, but now we have dramas and comedies and docu-series that allows us to give a solid balance and tell black stories better. But that period, because I was doing the neighborhood awards with Steve Harvey and we we couldn't even get really presenters. Because there weren't any black celebrities on TV or in the business. It was really a dark period. So from a creative standpoint, I know what led you to that thought process. Because guess what? Hollywood wasn't even trying to put a scripted idea in a black person's hand. At all. Like I said, literally, I'm sitting here as I'm talking. I can remember the meetings where people's eyes, they just would glaze over. They just... (laughs) like had no appreciation for, for, you know, what I was talking about and no interest, no interest, you know, and part of, and and I, you know, and frankly, one of the things is Los Angeles is a very segregated city. And I think that, you know, while the rest of the, the, the country was, more integrated and kind of in, in embracing different cultures. LA was slow to come to the table to understand that that many people are interested in the stories of all people. Now let's let's, let's get back to you know why you really came on the show. You come on the show to talk to Rashawn. You got this hit show on TV called The Equalizer with Queen Latifah. Uh, <laughs> now I'll ask you this for my first question: is premiering after the Super Bowl. I know. Okay, okay, Deborah. Okay, Deborah, you've done a lot of great things in your life. Okay, certain phone calls come to you. You're like, you got to be kidding. When? How did that? How did that opportunity break for you? And how did you react? Or where were you at when they told you that your series was going to premiere was going to be after the Super Bowl? So funny. We were we were shooting because we we are um, 
we are well, we are based at the Izod Center at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. This is below me uh, is the arena floor and our standing sets are there. My office here is a skybox at the Izod Center. (laughs) We do some exteriors in, in New York, but we shoot a lot in New Jersey. Right. That night we were in Bayonne, New Jersey at an oil supply field that was nasty. It was Mm -hmm. freezing cold. Mm -hmm. And I got this text from the head of drama at Universal Television saying, you know, um, we need to have a call immediately with CBS. You know, can you get the other executive producers together and and in 15 minutes? And we were like, okay. And we really didn't know what the call was. We were like, oh my God, you know, over budget. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that. And uh, George Cheeks, who is the head of CBS, was on the call and he said, guys, I have good news for you. We believe in this show. We believed in it from the very beginning and we're putting you after the Super Bowl. And we were just like, oh my, you know, it's like, ah, oh my God. Um, it's huge. It was huge. It was huge. Oh, uh, you know, and I, and I saw the premiere and I've, I've been following the series ever since. And, you know, when it was announced, you know, you, know, you had Denzel and he had the original series and, Queen Latifah, you know, because I know the role has some type of physicality tied to it if you want to have some type of credibility. And so my original thought was, can Queen Latifah handle the physicality tied to this role? And I'm telling you, uh, from the pilot series on, when she walked in that uh, with a room where the, where, the, where the young lady was taken in and she. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, and, and she broke off, took the gun, kicked him in the corner, shot him and and walked out. And I went, OK, this is a hit series right here. This is a hit series <laughs> because, you know, it's, everything's tied to credibility. And to me, that was the credibility moment for me in this series. And walk us through that whole process of bringing Queen Latifah on board, talking about the physicality and her rising to the occasion. You know, it's so funny. So our show, you know, the Denzel movie franchise is, is great and has been enormously successful. Mm-hmm. They took the basic idea and, and, and built from there. Right. Our show is based on the original 1980s show. Those are the rights that we have. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I, you know, Dana and I go way back. We actually actually shot just right portions of just right the movie we did together here at the Izod Center, which is really you know great symmetry. And I've been trying to get back in business together. And I brought her in to have a meeting with Universal TV, where I have my deal. And Perlina Ibokwe, who was the head of UTV then, is now the head of the Universal Studio Group. An amazing you know black woman was there and she said, you know, Queen Latifah, we have a few ideas for you. Right. That we want to talk to you about. And the first one was was Equalizer. And honest to God, there was a moment of silence. And then Dana said, yes. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I, and I think everybody in the room could see her in the role. It just made sense. And then you know, we, we have amazing showrunners, Terry Miller and Andrew Marlowe, and they and our other executive producers, we all got to, the role was built for her. Right. We right. spent a lot of time talking about what the show should be, what the role should be. You know, then Queen Latifah spent time on her own with the creators of the show. So they really got a sense of her and her voice and crafted a character that reflected who she was, her essence her strength 
and, and, and her beauty. Uh, but, you know, from the very beginning, it was really important to all of us and, and really important to Queen Latifah, to your point, that the action be credible. Right. She was like, I got, you know, I got a, I got a brand. I got an image. <laughs> I cannot go out there half-baked. So yeah. she trained. We have experts that she works with, with the, for the guns. Mm-hmm. And those fight sequences, she does a lot of it herself. Uh, and she's great. It's great. I think it's great. And the, obviously, she rides motorcycles in real life. So right. that we 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 put that in there because we knew that was organic to her. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the thing about it is, first of all, you, you said beauty, beautiful. You know, everybody got HD, 4K, 5K, whatever. I'm looking at I look at that show and I go, she looks fantastic. Yeah. She is absolutely a beautiful woman. I'm going, by the way, you're very beautiful as well. You look fantastic as well. I'm I'm trying to figure out what cream y'all doing over that set. (laughs) So I could just roll up in that little jersey and say, can you put some on Rashawn? Because I looked at, because I'm going like, because that, you know, that, 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 that captured me in the pilot in every episode is how great she looks. Her skin looks fantastic. And that carry, carries over, I think, into the, the way she carries herself through the series, you know, she carries herself as a very confident person. Then she has the issues with her daughter, which humanizes her, it right. makes her vulnerable and makes her not feel so perfect. Is that, you know, in the streets? That's precisely the point. Mm-hmm. And, and because what she, re- Robin McCall represents most women right. who have to balance career and family and personal life. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, in this case, it's, you know, she's former CIA agent who's, you know, kicking butt on a regular basis. But it's just, you know, it, it's exaggerated by TV terms, but it's a real, it's a real balancing act that every woman does, juggling. And I think that is what makes her very relatable to both men and women. Men are juggling too, you know, it, our, our lives are complicated. And so we like to say, you know, she can take down the baddest criminal, right. but she can't. It's hard for her to stand up to her sixteen-year-old daughter. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that's real. And that's that's the beauty of when you when you're building our characters, and that, and you've been known for developing characters and, oh, and and making sure the characters are flushed out. And that's what I appreciate that because I hate sitting down watching a movie, or and I'm not engaged, or the character doesn't get me emotionally attached right. to their problems. And that's really what really is one of the one of the true successes behind the equalizer, correct? Yes. Yeah, because she's a fully fleshed out human human being, woman, uh, as you'll see, you know, we've got romance coming and, and everything else. But yes, I mean, I believe character comes first. Right. Because if you can relate to the people, then you then you will take any journey with them. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, that's something, I mean, I've always been a storyteller and I've you know, was a voracious reader growing up. But also, you know, I ran Denzel Washington's company early on in my career. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things I learned from him was how to approach things from the character perspective. And, And, and I, you know, it is how I live. Now you get this big opportunity. We're coming into 2021. I'm going to have a conversation about COVID-19 and the production and how you ramping up. Cause you know, uh, medical safety, safety of the cast and safety of the production team is, is what what moments are in the beginning and what moments that have allowed you to have more freedom now in the production of the show, The Equalizer? 
Well, listen, it's been a challenge. It's a challenge for, for everybody who's in production right now. It's enormously expensive. Yes, it is. Uh, we, I test every day, as does a significant portion of our crew. And certainly anybody who comes in contact with the actors, because the actors are, I'm, you know, there's no show without the actors, but they're the most vulnerable because they have to work with no masks on. So we've got... Um, you know, and, and 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 everything is slower. Yes, you know, is. location scouting is slower. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that everybody has to test takes time out of your day. Um, you've got, you know, we've got masks and shields on all day long. So funny, we always laugh and say at some point, you know, we're going to be able to take these off and we won't recognize each other. <laughs> because we haven't yes, seen yes, yes. most of my crew without a mask on. So it's a, and, and also, you know, particularly in the beginning, because we started shooting November 9th when it was a, a different time, there was no vaccine yet. People are scared. I know. And so that, you know, they're nervous and, and they're nervous about being, I mean, I, most of us have gone from being in our homes relatively isolated with a little bubble to, I work with 200 people every day in an arena, which is a luxury in these times, yes, it is. but you know, in the beginning people were scared and nervous yeah. and like, Oh my God, am I going to, you know, is this, am I going to get sick? Mm-hmm. So um, universal NBC universal has been incredibly responsible and CBS and safety has really come first, but it's tough. You know, the thing about it is that when I look at, you know, we talked about our frustrations and seeing, you know, scripted and uh, black storytelling, you know, cast aside for reality. And then, but I, I think that it was really helped us is the streaming industry, streaming television, the, the, the need for content. And then when the content was presented, we delivered. Talk about the, the, the change and the shift in the industry and how it has impacted in a very good way, black programming. Absolutely. And kind of the fundamental difference is the movie studios have moved to making tentpole movies that appeal to the widest possible audience globally. And that's, that's how they justify their, you know, their cost structure and, and how they make money. The network television similarly is making shows that appeal to the widest possible audience and that appeal globally. So, you you know, to find distinctive voices to support those in those environments is really hard. Whereas streaming on the other hand is more about niche marketing. Mm -hmm. And so you can have, uh, you know, insecure, which well, it's on HBO, but still, you know, cable, cable and streaming, which is all the same now because HBO plus, because HBO plus doesn't, you know, doesn't have 8 million viewers every week, but has a very loyal following and is a hit. In right. that sense, right? Because it's all they just, you know, the the streamers and and premium cable, they're about subscribers. Right. So if they can, if a show appeals to a certain, you know, subscriber piece of the of the base, and they are loyal followers, that's that's what their business is to to build up those different audiences into one great audience. And so it's been hugely beneficial to diverse storytellers. It really is personal. Like you were saying, HBO and Insecure and now the HBO Max, which is their streaming affiliate. And really, they're building that out more than they're building out HBO because the content can be found on HBO Max. And the beauty of what I like about, Deborah, about the whole 
world of streaming is that you know from a movie 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 selling. If you're a black lead, it was going to be domestic. They wouldn't even walk internationally with you. And Absolutely. so, so it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Mm-hmm, right. And so, but you like, I'm just using Netflix as an example, 180 countries. So when they premiere a black project on Netflix, it premieres in 190 countries. So there's no discrimination about the content and everybody gets an equal chance to enjoy the product. And I really feel that that's where we're going with it. And that's when I say my have times change and my have times change is really tan is really tied to the content avenues that we get to tell our stories. And it's great people like you, Deborah Martin Chase, that are telling it. They've changed. Times have changed tremendously. <laughs> and again, I think it's it 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 is it is the streaming and cable and 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 a different appetite and the demand for mm-hmm. content. I mean, it, you know, content is needed mm-hmm. across the board. And it's, it's really- also a realization that people will that you know that white people will watch shows with a black lead. That's- I mean, Shonda. You know, her shows are really important in, in the dynamic of all this because Grey's Anatomy came on with the, that fabulously diverse cast. It was right. a huge hit. Right. And people were like, oh, okay. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be just one one that one black person. Right. It can be pe- black people in major roles. Then Scandal. Scandal was huge because, mm-hmm. you know, it was like the second show on network TV that had a ABC. female black mm-hmm. lead. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ABC was nervous at first, but to the credit, you know, you had Shonda, you had Channing Dungey was there, that was had a drama. And you had the fact that, that Olivia Pope was loosely based upon Judy Smith, the very successful black crisis publicist. So it was hard not to cast a black woman. And that was a huge success. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of went from there. So, it's look. I'm just. I'm happy that I'm still in the in business right now <laughs> to take advantage of where we are right now. Well, first of all, you are fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on the series uh, Money Making Conversation to talk the Equalizer, starring Queen Latifah. Every Sunday, you got a hit show on my on your hands. Every Sunday, eight o'clock after sixty minutes. CBS again it gave us great real sell estate. Selling, it. selling. So it. Sell it. we are. Um, you know, please keep coming. Thank you so much for everybody for your support. We appreciate it. We're working hard to continue to make a great show. And and thank you. Well, you know, uh, I don't out of my closing, you know, we got the Queen B, Beyonce out of Houston. Now we got the Queen C. That's uh, <laughs> Deborah Martin Chase out of Houston. Third Ward, Texas, y'all. Third, my oh, own, my own so Queen C, right? I own on the air with Queen C here. Deborah Martin Chase. Third Ward, Texas, y'all. I came from Fifth Ward, so three and five, that makes eight. We good. Thank you for coming on the show, Deborah Martin Chase. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been such fun talking to you. <laughs> You're great. Yeah, I love it. And, and tell Queen Latifah, we've been trying to get her on Steve Harvey. I mean, uh, Steve, Stephen A's World, because we want, because we want to help promote the show. So we're going to reach okay. out again. Listen, it was like definitely. Yeah, definitely. We, we're going to reach out again because she had, it was a conflict in the schedule. But we definitely want to promote uh, your brand because Stephen Stephen A is a big fan of yours, Deborah, and a tremendous fan of Queen Latifah. And any way I can promote positive black projects, and this is an amazingly great black project held by an amazing black iconic figure in the entertainment industry named Devin Martin Chase. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We will be right back with more money making conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. 
Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, the host of Money Making Conversation. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities, and everyday dads, the Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is Dundre Whitfield. He is an Emmy-nominated veteran TV and film actor. His new book, Male vs. Man, is a game changer. Dondre's goal is to help readers understand how the definition of manhood has changed and to transform males so they can obtain man status. Our manhood is directly tied to our dedication to being a servant leader, serving the women and children in our lives. I talk about in the book how every man has to be the walking tree of his house and community. Right. So a tree feeds us, a tree gives us shelter, a tree allows us to breathe better. That's the job of every man for every woman and child in his life. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men who have strength, whose wisdom is assertive, and who is genuine in their spirit. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is truly an industry decision maker. His name is Harvey Mason Jr. He proudly serves as the chairman of the board of the Recording Academy, also known as the Grammys. <laughs> and he has also stepped in the role of interim president and CEO for the Recording Academy. Let's give a little background on Mr. Harvey here. He has not only penned and produced songs for industry legends like Aretha Franklin, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, but he's all in Elton John, but also for today's superstars, including Justin Bieber, Beyonce, John Legend, Ariana Grande, Justin Timberlake, and Chris Brown. In addition, he's compiled an impressive list of film and TV credits, including writing and producing the music for Jesus Christ Superstar Live. This is just a few of them. I'm not going to name it all. Jingle Jangle, Christmas Story, Christmas Journey, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, Shrek, Straight Outta Compton, all three Pitch Perfect movies. The Grammy Awards are music's biggest night. And the 63rd Grammy Awards are airing on Sunday, March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on CBS. What can we expect? That's why I have him on the show. Talk a little bit about his life, how an extraordinary guy like him can be sitting in the background looking so good. Please welcome the Money Making Conversation, my man, Harvey Mason Jr. How you doing, sir? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. This is great. Chairman of the board. Chairman of the board of the Recording Academy. What does that, what does that mean? Well, it means that some people that were the trustees <laughs> of the academy thought that I would be good to push the, the academy forward into the next generation of, of what this academy looks like, and they voted for me. So we have 44 trustees. Uh, I ran as chair on a platform of change and improvement to the academy, which I felt we needed a lot of. Uh, you know, I'd been a member of the Recording Academy for probably I don't know, 15, 16 years. So I'd seen a lot of the great things that it does, all the mm -hmm. amazing programs and work that it does around philanthropy and giving back to the music community, but also advocacy and fighting for the rights of creators and music people. And then education, making sure that we're, we're getting the instruments in the hands of the kids and the next generation of music makers and continuing to expose people to music. So those are the things I loved about the Academy. There are a few things that I thought we could do better. And so I ran for chair and they voted for me. Congratulations. Uh, you know, my, I have a little music background in middle school. I was a first chair clarinet, you know, All right. second chair uh, tenor saxophone. And I and got to high school, you know, you know, I got too cool for music, got too cool for the band, and I left the band. <laughs> You're and never but, too cool for the I, band. I, I, Come I, on. I thought I was, Harvey. I'll tell you, I, I thought, but you know, the thing about it is that I would tell everybody music really focused me and really helped with my memorization. 
And so mm-hmm. when you start talking about going into the community and, and and having children understand the value of music, playing music, singing, and understand it really, I always tell it's a big asset. Can you tell everybody the, the contributions that not only just from being able to play the music, but from a life and from an educational standpoint, how music can really evolve a child's life? I guess that's a, uh, I mean, it's a good question. It's probably one that a scientist or, or, or psychiatrist could probably answer even better than I can. But I know personally what music does for me is similar to, as you said, it helps you uh, find balance, find a center, absolutely uh, creates a sense of emotional uh, connection or relatability to people. Like if you're writing a song or you're listening to a song that's been composed, you see that other people have felt what you felt. You you see that other people have gone through things that you've gone through. So there's something there that's reassuring. It's something that's identifiable and relevant to a lot of different people's lives. So music can be served as uh, something that can, can heal and can help. Right. And that's a little bit of what I love about being involved in the Academy is I try and use music in our platform at the Grammys to make sure we're, we're doing good and we're doing good work. We're bringing people together, especially with our show this March. You know, this is going to be the first time in a long time that maybe a lot of people have come together around music. So mm-hmm. my hope is this, it can be some medicine. It can be something that uh, starts to heal. The last year has been a tough year for everyone, as right. you know, especially yeah. people in the music industry. So my hope is that music, as you said earlier, can be something of a positive and be something that's not just entertaining, but also healing and, and improves the lives of people who, who, are fans of it and who love it. I, I I have nothing but positive things about what happened in my life. I used to drag a, a tennis saxophone a mile to my uh, junior high school, middle school, and uh, drag it back. Now, I, I I would tell everybody I, that anybody who plays a trumpet is amazing to me, and anybody who plays the flute is amazing to me because it's all, it's all about the lips. It's all about the curvature. And I, I put that reed on that clarinet, put that reed on it. I was good. I was good. Squeeze real hard. Knew, they had the fingers working. I was I was your man. But I respected the <laughs> flutist and the and, and and the trumpet player. That was that's a skill level. What's your, what's your skill level from a from a technical standpoint, instrument standpoint? Well, I play piano and mm-hmm. I play drums and percussion, and a little little bit of bass and a few other things, but my main instrument that I write and, and produce on is piano. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, here's the interesting thing about it, because I, I rattle off a lot of talent, you know, with Pop, or, you know, Justin Bieber got him in my car, you know, Justin Timberlake got him in my car. I got, you know, Beyonce. I'm from Houston. I My background with Beyonce, uh, 1992, I introduced her in my comedy club. I was one of the first people to recognize Destiny Tile as a group. So we go way back personally. Wow. And all those different talent levels that you, how do you walk in a room and how do you create that relationship? You know, not to mention the legends of Michael Jackson and Aretha Franklin and Elton John, but all these people are on my playlist. So that means that you have a sense from the type of, music ear that I have. So, but each one of these people have a certain style that they want to bring to the table. They don't want to be a copycat song. Right. How do you, how do you introduce yourself to that, to their talents? Each person's slightly different, but in general, I try and enter with a sense of humility, but mm-hmm. also confidence because number one, I'm, I'm highly respectful of people who create art. I think people who I've gotten a chance to work with are absolutely amazing and incredible talents and are very special for their talents. Um, but I also know that uh, they need collaboration right. and they, they look for people that can 
bring the best out of them. And as a producer and a songwriter, that's really been my goal throughout my career is to try and, regardless of who I'm work, working with, mm -hmm. to try and elevate or to try and make their performance be the best performance they've ever given. Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's, you know, Aretha Franklin or a new artist like Chris Brown that we started with when he was 14 years old, 15 years old. So my goal is always to be humble, be respectful, uh, appreciative of the opportunity to work with, with new artists as well as legacy artists, but then also come with the confidence and a spirit of collaboration so that we can work together. Because what I do, I feel is also special and what I can bring to the table, hopefully uh, can be helpful to them and their performance. So that's generally how I do it. Sometimes it's easier than others. You know, you're dealing with artists that uh, are the legacy or the legend artists. They, they've been doing it for a long time, sometimes 30, 40, 50 mm -hmm. years. And uh, they look at you as the new young kid who thinks he's hot stuff. And uh, sometimes those are challenging, but it's really about breaking down uh, those types of barriers and preconceptions and letting the people know that my interest is only uh, having them shine. My interest is not about me shining. And that's the job of a producer. You've got to make sure that they trust you and feel that your interests are aligned. And, and I guess that's why I've had a, a fairly long career. I've been right. able to uh, gain the trust of artists and make sure artists feel like there's no agenda. It's not about Harvey trying to look good. It's about Michael or about Whitney or whoever I'm working with, making sure they give their best performance and their fans are saying, oh my gosh, where did this song come from? This artist <laughs> that I love so much. Really, it's really interesting because you, you you mentioned earlier your talents, piano. So was it is it easy to work with a talent like an Elton John or a John Legend whose strength is at the piano or it doesn't matter? Working with any really talented person is pretty easy because it flows and they're contributing so much. I try and contribute what I can. And whether it's piano that's their main talent or it's just a vocalist or a guitar player, it's, as I said, it's collaboration and, and great talent is generally in favor of, of strong collaboration. And I've found in my experience that the legends are all uh, very open. If you come with good ideas and again, you don't come with a, a personal agenda. Right. And if your goal is to make them shine, whether that's John Legend, Elton John, whoever it is, they're going to be excited about the collaboration. I really want to, if I can't get in your head, because I'm a visual person, Harvey. And so when I, when I see, when I see a Michael Jackson, I just see movement. Well, I see a Justin Timberlake, I see a movement. I see Aretha Franklin, I just see her right there commanding the stage. Same thing with Whitney Houston, right there commanding the stage. From a, do you look at music from a visual standpoint or is it all audio? It's a unique question. Uh, I don't really tend to study. I'm not as cerebral as maybe you're thinking about it. I, mm -hmm. I try and go off of emotion and feeling. Right. And I also try and pay attention and really close attention to the person I'm working with or working for. Right. Uh, as you said, a couple of names, if I'm doing a, uh, you know, a Beyonce song, it's going to be very different from a song that I might do for Aretha. So you have to be cognizant of who their audience is and what that artist has done in the past. So for me, it's not visual. It's not thinking about concerts. Um, and it's not just oral, you're not just hearing it. It's really mm -hmm. a combination of everything put together. And, and I'm thinking of it more from the standpoint of who is the artist? Who is their audience? What is their history? Mm -hmm. What have they talked about in the past? What are they going through in their life now? And trying to weave all of that into a song. And that's a lot. And, and when, I, when I look at the Grammys, which has always been like, because I mentioned earlier the Recording Academy, and then you have the Grammys. How did the two names become associated with each other? 
Well, they are one and the same. The Recording Academy uh, is sometimes referred to as the Grammys. Uh, the Recording Academy is the overall not-for-profit organization, 501c3 uh, corporation that is built to host the Grammys. Right. And in hosting the Grammys, that is a television show on CBS. We receive income from the television show and that money goes directly back into the music community. And that's why we're a not-for-profit. So uh, our objective and our mission is to serve our members. We have over 20,000 members who are professional music creators from you know everything, producers, engineers, songwriters, managers, some lawyers. So those are our members. We put on the Grammy show through the Academy we receive income and then that goes back out. I talked a little bit about music cares, you know, during COVID this year, we had so many music people lose their income, lose their ability to even make an income. So music cares because of some of the money that we brought in over the years from our TV show, along with fundraising efforts, we've been able to give out over $22 million to people who needed help during COVID. And that effort continues. And that's just one of the things we do through the Academy and through our not, not for profit organization. The other we talked about was advocacy. So having the ability and the resources to be in Washington, D.C., actually on the ground there, talking to lawmakers, making sure that music people are taken into consideration for legislation is something that we do and we're very, very passionate about. We spend a lot of time and energy making sure that we're doing that. So this year, the, the CARES Act, the HITS Act, these are all acts that give some relief to our country. But now, thanks to the Recording Academy and other people, uh, musicians and people who make and create music are included in these relief packages. So something that we do during these times and all fall under the the recording academy umbrella that's that's really amazing that's really a blessing as well because during the COVID 19 live events basically shut down it was shut down they still haven't recovered yet and then maybe this summer or maybe in the fall we can start getting back there but you're a writer you're a producer you're so there's a term out there called mailbox money which means that you're making money while you sleep that had to be a blessing concerning the the, the, the catastrophe that was going on in the in the live event side to be a writer still receiving some form of income. Am I correct in saying that? You're partially correct, actually. We love mailbox money, but the thing is, and what's happened as of the last few years is mailbox money has continued to decrease and it's mm. almost deteriorating because of the way legislation plays out and allowing streaming companies to continue to use our intellectual property and our art at such a low pay rate. So we right. are barely monetizing songs at this point, as far as the songwriter is concerned. Now, if you're an artist or you're a record company, there's some good royalties that can still be generated and you're still getting that mailbox money you're talking about. But mm. as a producer and a songwriter, those numbers are, you know, they're a little bit in flux. And that's one of the things the Academy has been doing is making sure that we're advocating in DC, making sure we're jumping up and down, talking about, creators and the creator's rights and what should they be paid and how can they monetize what they, you know, sweat and bleed for, which is our music and our craft. We make these songs. They don't just come out of thin air. Actually, they do come out of thin air, but (laughs) they don't just magically appear. We work and we, Mm -hmm. we study, we practice, we perfect our craft sometimes for 20, 30 years in order to make music and make songs. And then sometimes it goes onto different platforms and there's not a compensation for that. So the mailbox money is getting scary. It's getting more and more scarce. Um, and it's not the fault of the streaming companies. We believe the streaming companies are great partners. They're exposing so much amazing music to the general population and to consumers. And it's giving the consumers a chance to choose and be exposed right. to so many different types of music they might never heard, might not have ever heard before. Uh, but we have to figure out some equitable way to make sure that people who create this art and spend the time 
making the music that we all love and enjoy continue to be able to make the mailbox money. Otherwise, people are going to have to get other jobs and other sources of income, and, and it will decrease the number of people that are really making the great art that we all appreciate. Wow. Uh, the Grammy Awards is the moneymaker. It's the music's biggest night. It's the 63rd Grammy Awards. It's airing on Sunday, March 14, 8 p.m. on CBS. What can we expect? You can expect an amazing show. You can expect great performances. Nothing like you've seen during COVID. You know, we're mm -hmm. doing things very differently. This is not a virtual show. Okay. This is not people sending in videos of them performing either at their house or at some different location. These are people that are performing on the Grammy stage in Los Angeles. Uh, you'll see live awards. Uh, you won't see a large audience, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but I'm really excited. You're going to see uh, a beautiful set, beautiful staging and set decoration. Uh, and I think it's going to be, as I said earlier, a bit of a opportunity to come together and celebrate music as much as celebrating feels maybe slightly awkward right now because there is so much hardship and so many things happening uh, that put us at, at unrest and, and in, a, in a state of uncertainty. But I think this will be a time for some rebirth, and that's a little bit of the theme of some of our, our elements of the show and coming together and, and uh, feeling good around music. Well, you know, the thing about it, I, I want to say celebration. I'm going to stick with that, Harvey, because, you know, we've been locked down. Uh, you know, my wife, she's still not comfortable going out to a restaurant. She, we have not been out of a restaurant since COVID lockdown. And, yeah. and, 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 and so, you know, we, she goes out to the store, we're wearing masks. There's a, there's a, there's a life of not being comfortable, life of not being normal. To see, mm -hmm an amazing show like the Grammys somewhat returning to his live performance format, because all we've seen is these zoom type setups, uh, you know, virtual somewhere, the train station, but Norrin is not nowhere in the facility as a unified show. I think right. it's really important. How did you guys get to that point of production to say, this is the type of show we're going to do. We're not going to do the traditional remote performances and then just package it together. Well, it's something we always hoped for. You know, originally when this started, we said, well, we'll just keep our fingers crossed and hopefully we can have our show as normal. But as we got closer and closer to January, we knew we weren't going to be able to do uh, the big Staples Center with 17,000 people. Mm -hmm. So we changed and, and pivoted and made an adjustment to what we thought was the next best thing, which was bringing the artists together and having a show that they actually came to L.A. and performed. Uh, and we've got a great new director this year, executive producer of the show. Uh, ben Winston's the executive producer, and he's had an incredible vision for the show. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had our, our last uh, executive director, or rather um, executive producer, Ken Ehrlich, for the last, I think, 40 shows. So, and he's <laughs> done did amazing work for us over the years. But having a different um, producer has really brought a different look to the show and a different kind of energy and a different approach to it. So I have to say that a lot of what's happening on March 14th is because of Ben Winston and his vision and his plan for doing something original and different. Well, you know, the, the, the Grammy serves several purposes for me. One, I get to see live entertainment, but also artists who win. You can see their record sales or digit sale or digital sales or whatever term they're using nowadays. You know, you, you still use the word album. They don't make albums technically anymore. Yeah, they're <laughs> streaming numbers. <laughs> their streaming numbers can go off. So being a nominee and being a winner and being a live performer are really and also a presenter can, are the major blessings as far as being a part of the Grammy Awards, correct? Yes, it's a great platform for, for creators and for artists, songwriters, 
And as you said, being exposed on the show can have huge benefits for record labels or for the companies that put out this music and for the artists themselves. But for us, it's an opportunity to showcase a lot of different great music. It's an opportunity to celebrate excellence and shine a light on the people that our voters felt had outstanding projects this year. And it's also a chance for us, and I hate to be crass about it, but it's a chance for the Academy to generate some income so that we can do Mm -hmm. the programs that we're so passionate about and we can give back to the music community. The infrastructure set up with the Academy and it's one thing that happens, you know, a lot of people are critical about the awards or who gets nominations, who gets a win, why didn't this person get nominated? And I respect and totally understand that I've been snubbing myself in the time when I thought I should have gotten <laughs> nominated yes. and didn't. But at the end of the day, I tend to look at it from a perspective of this show is incredible. It's amazing. It's so important, but it's also a vehicle that allows us as an academy to generate income so that we can do the really, really important work that we do in the industry to be helpful and to to stand up programs that change and affect the future of our business and hopefully the future generation of of music makers that are coming into into this uh, community. It's, it's amazing my conversation I'm having with you because I'm exposing you. I'm talking to Harvey Mason Jr. He's the chairman of the board of the Recording Academy and the interim president and CEO, also known as the Grammys, which will be airing on March 14th on CBS at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Well, I want to get back to you because you're a special cat, man. I mentioned the songs that you penned, but the television and film side, I, 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 I got to let people know who you are, man. I, I'm saying I want them to Google you and realize that you are truly a gifted guy because a lot of people can be good at one thing. Because to me, what you're doing is like watching the LeBron James play football and basketball. Because you know, say nice comparison. I'll take it. Thank you. Oh, you you got to, and please do. You're chairman of the board. Come on now, you big, you big (laughs) boss. And so, and I I see that because you know, when I see straight out of Compton, all three pitch perfect moves, which I loved. You know, Jingle Jangle, one of my favorite, uh, probably the 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 first film since The Wiz from a a Black Christmas uh, 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 musical, which was amazing. Mm -hmm. A good friend of mine, David Talbot, and his wife. I interviewed them on the show and I and it, and, it, and it trended a lot on Netflix. When you start looking at it, looking at these type of productions, because, you know, straight out of the company was rap. Jingle Jangle was a was a Christmas. Yeah. Zoe's extraordinary. That's a that's a dramatic where they just sing on television. How do you that's that's what I'm saying. How did you start balancing all that? Those are different genres, just like it is with the artists. But this is even more because it's different songs that play off on different moments. They're in and out cues. Talk to us about first television, then film. Well, on the television side, you know, your timelines are very tight. Things are done quickly. It's week to week. And so every day you're doing something different. It's by the end of the week, it's approved and into the show. So it's being nimble. It's being creative. It's problem solving really quickly. Uh, and I think it's a lot of different genres of music. As you mentioned, you know, we've done Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist for two years. I think last season we did 70 or 80 songs for yes. that. And we're doing another show for Apple TV where we're doing 20 or 30 songs. Uh, and doing those series, it's a lot of work and it's quick paced. Uh, as far as the film side, you know, we're doing uh, a movie right now called Respect. It's the biopic about Aretha Franklin starring Jennifer Hudson. That I'm very excited about. And the difference with film to TV is you have more time. You're, you know, I've been working on that film for two years. So right. it's really about fine tuning, perfecting everything that you're doing. Every piece of music, every note is looked at and re-looked at by the producer, the director, the studio. Uh, the music team. So it's a, a lot of inspection of almost everything that you're doing. That is a major difference. But the similarities are 
you're trying to use music to tell a story. You're trying to use music as a character in the show or the film, and you're trying to evolve the story plot generally with a song or with lyrics. So I've been very fortunate to be able to work across different genres and with different types of artists throughout my career in record making, but as well in film and TV, because it's all music. You know, it's stuff that I love. I love classical. I love rock. I love rap, R&B, pop, country. We do it all because... To me, it's all just different expressions of different emotions through different genres. So I've been very fortunate to get a chance to work with a really wide variety of people and genres. Cool. Now, uh, before we go, I want to ask you about this. Always with the Grammys. I know how powerful the Grammys is because people use nominations as part of their credits. So they've been nominated by a Grammy for a Grammy. They're going to mention that as part of their credits. How does yeah. one get in that nomination process? Is it a is it a board somewhere? Is it, is it a, a, a set of uh, music experts? How does one get nominated for a Grammy Award? Sure. Uh, the good thing is our, our Grammy rules and voting is published online. Everything is very public and you can, you can Google it and find these rules out much better than I'll, I'll describe it to you. <laughs> but again, we have a voting membership. We have membership at the Academy. There's 20,000 or so members. And then we have 12,000 of those members are what we call voting members. And the mm-hmm. voting members, in order to get that distinction, you have to be a creator. You have to be a songwriter, a producer, engineer, artist, somebody who's actually involved in the creation of the music. If you are deemed that by the Academy, you are called a voting member. Those 12,000 voting members take all the submissions. Anybody who makes music can submit uh, through the label or through a member or, or submit a song or a record or project. All those come in. This year we had 22,000 submissions. It's the most submissions we've ever had. The 12,000 voters look through all the submissions and vote on their favorites. The favorites are narrowed down. Then we have a group of nominations, a committee review that goes and they take they take every song and they listen to the top 20 or so songs. And generally, the nomination review committee is made up of experts in each genre. So each different genre has a specific committee that reviews the voters' choices. So if you're talking about folk music, you have... 15 or 20 folk music experts listening to the finalists voted on by the voting membership. At that point, the committee will establish who the five or eight nominations go to, because in some categories there's five, in the general field there's eight. Once those nominations are determined, then those names go back out to the voting body, and the voting body decides who the winner is. So uh, it's a combination, to answer your question even more simply, of the general voting body of 12,000 voters, the nomination review committee, and then finally, again, the voting body determines who the winners are. Awesome. Um, Speaking to Harvey Mason Jr., I I know I said the comparison with LeBron James, because he did not play football, I'm going to give you even better one, my good friend Deion Sanders, because he was talented and a Hall of Famer in football, and he played in the World Series in baseball. And that's what you're doing. You're not only uh, a talented writer, but a producer. You're doing television, you're doing film, you're doing individual orders, crossing all genres. You truly are a superstar behind the mic, and as well as sitting down at the piano. Harvey, thank you for uh, allowing me to ask my questions about the Grammys. Let my audience hear from a from a very strong success story, and hopefully they start Googling you and, uh, and start following you on social media, because you truly are a star. Thank you for coming on Money Making conversations. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Appreciate you having me. All right. Don't forget, the Grammys is Sunday, March 14th on CBS 8 p.m. My next guest is a combination celebrity and an industry decision maker. He's Jason George. 
He starred in the midseason return of Station 19 that airs on Thursday, March 11th, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on ABC. George is also known for his work as a regular of Mistresses, Eve, Off Center, and Eli Stone, as well as films Witches of East, East, East End, excuse me, The Climb, and Barbershop. After several years on Grey's Anatomy as Dr. Ben Warren, George turned in his scrubs for firefighter gear when his character helped start the spinoff hit action drama series Station 19 about heroic firefighters. Now, George moves seamlessly between both series. We'll be talking about his career from comedy to soap operas to drama to action adventure and acting and production during COVID-19. Please welcome to a man I've seen many, many years, always from afar, always wanted to cast him on my shows, but he was always working, Jason George. <laughs> How you doing, Jason? How you feeling? Oh, good, good, good. You know, when I say that, man, you know, because we all, uh, I know I started writing back in 92 on my first sitcom on ABC with Steve Harvey. And then I went to uh, the Robert Townsend and then I did Arsenio's mm-hmm. ABC series. The greats. And, the greats. Absolutely. And, but all the time I saw you working. You was always busy. And, and I like to believe that you, you, you've had a working man's career, which is a blessing because of the fact it's a testament to your talent. But this is not what you wanted to do or, or what's supposed to do law was supposed to be your your destiny correct yeah 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 that's exactly it um i had gotten with the vice principal of my high school mm-hmm. was uh but, but you know i was like i was a good student but i was also a cut up so mm-hmm. i'd be like getting good grades but in detention all the time right. and the vice principal would be like why you want to be you know he's one of the few black men i saw in education at the time mm-hmm. my mother was a teacher where i grew mm-hmm. up and uh and mr hassel would pull me aside and he'd be like why, why are you making me want to give you detention? Why are you trying to get detention right. all the time? And then right. he would like actually sit there and talk to me like I was an intelligent human being. Right. And then say, you got detention, but you got potential as well. And uh, and his son was, he passed away my senior year, right. uh, Mr. Hassel, my vice principal. And his son was only the second uh, black Supreme Court justice of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, and he was the youngest Supreme Court justice that Virginia had ever had. Mm-hmm. And his son and I got to be good friends. And he became my mentor. And basically the plan was you go to college. You get the grades. I'll write the recommendation, get you into the best law school we can get you into. Mm-hmm. You come back, you clerk for me, and then you're a made man as a lawyer in the state of Virginia, and you're right. done. Mm-hmm. Career right. ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And then I went to college and took an acting class, and it all went to hell. Right. Uh, I had to, <laughs> I called an audible, uh, changed up the plan, and I never told my father that I was going to go to uh, graduate school to study acting because my, right. uh, my father was checked out for a bit. My mom and I had a really beautiful conversation about it, mm-hmm. and then I had to talk to the judge. Uh, he was you know, the, the, one of the big male role models in my life. And I had to tell the judge and it was just stone cold silence on the phone for a minute. He was mm-hmm. uh, he was right. not feeling it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But fortunately, it worked out. And years later, signed some autographs for some people in his office. And we were cool. Right. We were cool. You, know, you know, so, Jason, it's really interesting because when I when I talk about individuals like you who sometimes people see a different direction and sometimes people get trapped in that direction that people want you mm-hmm. to go. And I, I know that uh, I was at IBM. I had a degree in mathematics. And so everybody was happy. They thought that was the career path. And I decided one day to, I want to be, I want to pursue my career as a stand up comedian. So a lot of people looked at me strange. Well, how are you going to walk away from IBM? You got a math degree that has nothing to do with telling jokes. How were you made that? So I can understand when you said there was silence on the phone because that wasn't the vision that person had for you. And right. and you encounter that a lot because you do a lot of community work. You work with young people. You work in the. You try to shape people's lives. Does your life come into play when you're giving people advice? All the time, all the time. I try and tell them. I say, look, um, 
you got to, you know, like you, we were talking just before the show started, you were saying, you know, all good actors are good listeners. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tell folks, part of your job as an actor or just as a person in life, part of the way of finding success is you got to listen for what guys whispering in your ear. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all the time that whispers in, but you got to be, uh, you got to be quiet enough at times that you can hear it. And then you got to be loud enough at times to make yourself heard. Right. Um, and so it's that thing when you realize that this really, this thing that everybody else wants for you is not what is meant for you. Right. Um, you got to be, then you got to make yourself loud, but right. you got to be quiet enough to be able to hear that every once in a while. And the reality is, you know, there's a difference between surviving and thriving. Right. You know, you mm-hmm. don't want to just get by, you want to live. Right. And you realize, you know, I remember I, it was years. I went to my, my cousin's wedding back in Louisiana and, uh, one of his friends, like my, uh, my cousin, he was kind of like his little brother, right. uh, kind of like his, uh, his adopted little brother. And this dude was, you know, grown man now. And he said, what's it like? And I assumed he meant like acting. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I said, I said, what, being an actor? He goes, no, like really enjoying what you do. Wow. Uh, because he was a, he was an accountant mm-hmm. and I was, just, I was knocked out by it. I was mm-hmm. like, how can you not enjoy like my accountant? The reason why my accountant is my accountant is because this dude's geeked out by being able to do his calculator yeah. one handed. Like mm-hmm. he loves seeing the numbers right. match out. Like he enjoys that. Right. Uh, you don't have to enjoy every aspect of your job. Virtually nobody does. Even actors don't. But you mm-hmm. got to enjoy. You got to find something in it that that gets you excited. That gets that makes you excited about going to work every once in a while, if not right. every day. And well, you know, the way he said it, I felt like if there's nothing there, that's that's a problem, dude. You need to reevaluate your life. <laughs> Really, because I know that like when I tell people I have a degree in mathematics, you know, I also tell people I don't do my taxes because, you know, that is not what I do. You know what I'm saying? Just because I know numbers don't mean I know taxes. And I can agree with you. What you were saying is that, you know, when I look at a life, you know, longevity is really interesting when you start looking at decisions that you make. And, you you know, and I don't question any decision I've made, George. I, I just live it because of the fact that it was the next step of opportunity. And if you live on regret, then you really you have an interesting life life that you should sit down and think about it like your friend like that person you talked about who's an accountant he's living a life of regret which is also going to spill over into other things your relationship how you raise your kids and you have to be happy what drives you to keep that sustain that you know you're in shape you know you 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 you're a working actor how what 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 sustains you george you know what's funny is for me it's there's internal motivations and there's external motivations. Right. Like external motivations are like people telling you to do something, deadlines you got to do, and you right. need some of that. I mean, right. some of that's what keeps you, you know, going. You know, uh, you know, like if somebody just walk, walks up, they just pat you on the belly because you're getting a little big down there. Right. That's an external motivation. <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> I mean, <laughs> ain't nobody looking for that. But um, the truth is, I enjoy how I feel when I exercise. You know, I grew up an athlete. I was captain of my track team. Mm-hmm. I grew up with, you know, friends, you know, you know, and so, you know, playing football in the backyard on the regular. And so that's, I just like how I feel when I do that. That's that internal motivation is mm-hmm. I like knowing that I can still, you know, I'm not 25 anymore, but I like knowing that I can still outrun some 25 year olds. I, right, right. I like keeping that type. Right, I think right. that's a good look. I like that look. Um, <laughs> and the same thing is like, you know, when I discovered acting, it was, I discovered things in myself that were interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And when I play new characters, I discover new things about myself. And so there's an internal motivation of what can I find out about me? Let's see if I can pull this off. Let me see mm-hmm. if I can pull that off. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge. You know, the challenges are that internal motivation. And so for me, it's about finding some of those. Like, I know, like, you know, you want me to get something, you know, a script written or a paper written or something like that. I need a deadline. 
know what I mean? But when it comes to working out or acting challenges, mm-hmm. that's the, mm-hmm. and I guess that's part of the thing as well. When you find out, you know, when you're trying to figure out what is that thing that you're in love with, if you don't need anybody else to push you because you push yourself, you're internally motivated. That's probably the thing you're meant to be doing. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, if you just love looking at the challenge and running. And then that's the thing that for me, like, you know, I knew a dude when I, when I ran track who, you know, you're supposed to draft the people in front of you when mm-hmm. you're running long distance, mm-hmm. you know, you know, stay with the pack. So you save some energy. So you have some energy at the end to break out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he only had one speed full out, right. Full out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, if I'm not hitting my personal best, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And I, I understand the wisdom of both sides, but I always kind of feel the heat of what he's talking about. I got to be pushing me at the end of the day. So I, you know, I, I balance the two. It's like, I may run with the pack for a little bit, but then when I break out, it's about getting my personal best. So right. you always got to be measuring yourself and it's got to be internally motivated. And that's what I said in the beginning when I set up the show is about, you know, reading other people's story, but what passion and what drive keeps you going? What's your planning? What's your committed effort? And that's what you talk about committed effort. Now, when I look at you, let's go over real. Jason, you're a handsome guy. On your show, we're going to get to a good story. It's going to be a good. It's not going to be a... I'll take it. I'll take it. You you can take it and and keep it because you've been living with it all your life. And that's a good thing. Now on, now on, you know, Station 19, you got my boy, Boris Kojo, who I know really well. I've been knowing Boris through all these sitcoms. Good looking guy. And I think he's doing some of his best acting on this, on this, on Station 18. I mean, his, his nuances, his, uh, you know, uh, frustration, uh, uh, being a guy who has a drug issue and really showing a, a wrong character. And, and the reason I say that because a lot of casting goes in into how you look and then people will sometimes not give you credit. Because of how you look uh, or use cast for this particular reason. And I'm, I'm so proud when I see what Boris is doing on Station 19 this season because of the fact that, you know, many years I know I would cast him because he was a good looking guy on sitcoms. You know, hey, we need a good looking guy in the scene. OK, let's Boris and he could act as well. And he can deal with comedic lines. What point in your brand or your career? Because I remember your Eve used a good looking guy. You used to stuck. You know, on, on Eve, you know, and so, but that was a good thing because you were getting a check and you was accomplishing your task. But in the process, you just want a job. So with all that being said, what, what's the ultimate goal? Getting a job or being respected for your acting? No, you want to be respected for your acting. Because look, I always look at it like, you know, it's, you know, it's like, uh, like I tell my kids, you know, like my kids are empirically speaking, good looking kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're some beautiful children. Mm-hmm. I tell them, that's your mom and me. That ain't got, you know, but if you're in shape, that's that you can say that's on you. Right. Uh, right. What you do in school, what you do, what you accomplish, what you create, you did that. Right. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's like, so for me, getting, being respected as an actor is that thing. And so when I get things that challenge me that have nothing to do with a look or likability, and the fun thing is that also we're at a spot in, in film and television, where, especially in television, where um, likability is not necessarily the point. We want interesting. Mm-hmm. We want interesting. Mm-hmm. Like they threw Boris the whole, uh, you know, drug addiction situation. And that's what, and he got a chance to show up what he's capable of because, you know, you gotta, you gotta get ugly for a second. Right. You gotta go to an ugly place and you gotta mm-hmm. do ugly things. And I love when I get opportunities to do that. I mean, I played, uh, you know, you know, war veterans who, who mm-hmm. uh, lose limbs and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I, I played, you know, I mean, everybody forgets that, you know, in barbershop, I was, you know, even I played, Boyfriend and girlfriend in barbershop before yes. we were on the sitcom Eve. Right. And on Eve, I was a pretty good guy. In barbershop, right. I was a dog. Oh, you dog now. I was a dog. <laughs> and it was, you know, yeah. And, and playing and playing the playing people who break break the rules is mm-hmm. a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. Because 
I don't do that uh, in, in real life. I don't break rules that I believe in in real life. Um, if I don't believe in your rules, I'm gonna just keep it moving. And you know, that's everybody who knows me. You know, it's like I, uh, you know, it's better. I, my favorite phrase. My wife gets frustrated with it. Is it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna do what I need to do, right. and then I'll, I'll find out if there's a rule saying I shouldn't do it later on. Um, but you know, so if you do that in the character, that's that's much more interesting. So I'm much more interested in the challenges of acting than I am in how I look and that sort of thing. And, you know, it's like, you know, I love working out. I love right. work. I enjoy exercising, right. but when it feels like it's an expectation, right. I, I want to go eat a pizza just to like, you know, tell people to step back, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm, I'm a little contrarian in that way, um, well, that's a good but, thing. That's but I'm good not thing. stupid. Right. I, you know, yeah. I enjoy it. I'm not going to cut off my nose despite my face. Absolutely. You know, uh, Greg is at Greg's anatomy. You know, you're regular Dr. Ben Warren. Then you get the call. Uh, we wanted to, uh, uh, you know, spin off and a new series. You know, there are no guarantees on a new series, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, how does that, you know, when they tell you they want you to do this, you know, Chandra Rhymes is asking you to do this, I'm assuming, to make this uh, move. So what were the thoughts running through your mind when this process was being pulled? Because you had the ability to go between both a doctor and a firefighter in the series. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, when it first came up for, you know, when you first get the call that, you know, Shonda Rhimes wants, wants to talk to you at five o'clock today, you think, <laughs> am I getting, you think, am I getting fired? Am I getting fired? Is this, is this that call? Is this that call? And then, uh, and then we, we got on the phone and uh, Shonda and I have been working together for a few years at that point. And, uh, mm -hmm. and her producing partner, Betsy Beers is, is also a good friend. And, and they were like, listen, you know, we're talking about doing the spinoff series and we want, Ben to go from being a doctor to being a firefighter. And the uh, Stacey McKee, who created Station 19, had written one of the last episodes of Grey's Anatomy the previous season. Mm -hmm. And in that episode, there was a massive fire at the hospital. And Ben, at the time, you find out, was deathly afraid of fire. Mm -hmm. That, you know, dude had a phobia of fire. It's mm -hmm. not, his, not his thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not feeling the fire. But he runs back in, grabs a firefighter's coat and runs back in to try and save a friend. Mm -hmm. And then when he doesn't die, that adrenaline junkie thing that they'd already established in Ben, that he he gets, he, that he loves the adrenaline, mm -hmm. uh, kicks in and he goes after the challenge. And that's part of what leads to him becoming a firefighter. And I didn't realize they were going that route, but uh, it turns out they kind of set it up a little bit, you know, right. and, you know, for me to move in that direction. So it, I wasn't getting fired. I was, in fact, getting a new <laughs> job and got to be on the ground floor of building a new, new, new part of the Grey's Anatomy world, a new part of Shondaland, which that's, that's the dream is you want to be part of, you know, Grey's Anatomy was Grey's Anatomy long before I came on. It was right. going to be Grey's Anatomy long after I left. Right. Mm -hmm. But I got to be part of helping create what Station 19 was from the ground. And so that challenge I was excited about. That said, you know, believe I was like, but listen, you know, I'm still a doctor. So <laughs> the show don't tell you, you can come back and be a doctor, right? Right? Yes, you can come back if need be, but you know, but they really like it's going to be good though, and it's been great. You know, they, but the interesting thing about it, this is we talk about acting, and you know, because there's a credibility in each role. You know, there's the physicality of being a firefighter in Station 18, but there's the intellect and the caring and the passion and the bedside manner that comes with being a doctor in Grey's Anatomy. The dynamics and preparing for each role. Tell us about first Grey's Anatomy, and then transitioning over to the physicality of Station 18. Was it an easy transition? What the more difficulties on Grey's Anatomy? to be as a doctor i don't know if easy is the word i would use i mean listen you know gray's anatomy is you know you've got language that you're using yes. all the you know, crazy amounts of latin words and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff which 
I took Latin a little bit in high school because when I thought I was going to be a lawyer, mm -hmm. I was like, so, you know, hominem, you know, you say word, you know, like, you know, I don't remember what any of the words mean, but I can say them. Right. I can say them. <laughs> and I know I know how the sound should come out. So I can sound like a doctor real easy. That that part came easily to me. And plus, doctors are wearing basically pajamas all day. You're right. in your scrubs. Right. You're chilling mm -hmm. all day. My mm -hmm. my uh, my. My play cuz is a. I lived with him when I first came out here. He's an anesthesiologist. LA. He's an anesthesiologist. Right. I think I saw him outside of Scrubs twice in three years. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and so you, we do a lot of eye acting when you're in surgery. You're standing in one spot, and mm -hmm. so a lot of it is your, your face is covered, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're looking intensely with your eyes during the surgery and that sort of thing. And so it's about getting focused. It's about turning it into a laser beam, mm -hmm. right? Uh, all the energy that you have as an actor, and that's all interesting and fun and. Uh, but then when you go to station 19, just the, the outfit you're wearing, the turnouts, the fireproof, uh, mm -hmm. gear that the firefighters wear that weighs 45 pounds plus another 15, 20 pounds of the oxygen tank that we rock on our back. Mm -hmm. So you got 60 pounds of wow. gear that you're wearing and you've got to get dressed in this gear, head to toe, zipped up. So it's fireproof inside of a minute. Mm. And the truth is real firefighters will tell you, if you take longer than 30 seconds, they're going to talk bad about you. <laughs> um, so while you technically have a minute, if you take, if you, if you're at 40 seconds, 45 seconds, they're like, mm -mm, dude, you don't get to go to the fire with me. You got to right. go to the B shift. Right. A right. shift, A shift, get it done in 30 seconds. So if getting dressed is hard, you know, you understand that there's a whole other level of physicality. Right. Uh, and I was ready for that. I was ready to bust out physically. And so running upstairs and I, you know, I told him first out, I said, look, I have no fear of heights. Right. I love jumping off of stuff and dangling from side. I said, so you pretty much put me through it, do it. And so they would get mad at me for the first couple of seasons because they'd have a 40 foot ladder going up mm -hmm. to the fourth story of the building. And don't tell me to climb it. If you only want me to climb like six steps and y'all cut, cause I'll get up 20, 30, you know, I'll be up to the second, third floor. They're like, they're yelling. They're like, insurance won't let you do that. <laughs> oh, Stop wow. It. Stop okay. it. And I was like, yo, y'all gave me a ladder. So I'm going to climb it. That's, mm -hmm. that's how I was, you know what I mean? That's how I get down. So mm -hmm. it, uh, it's definitely a different thing. And then trying to find a way to bring that intensity into the acting and into the performances while still bringing in the fact that these, these firefighters care so much about the people. Right. That's the fun thing is that when you're standing still and talking to people over their bed in a hospital, it's easier to let that caring come through that emotion, that empathy come right. through. Right. But when you're trying to drag somebody out of a fire, when you're trying to drag somebody out of a situation or carry them over your shoulder and that sort of thing, it's finding a way to let that empathy be seen. Cause the reality is the, if you've ever met a firefighter, if you've met any of these first responders, they have the biggest hearts. I mean, they, they have gallows humor like doctors do in the same kind. They'll make jokes just like soldiers do. In a, right. You know, like they'll make jokes that are inappropriate in so mm -hmm. many ways because they see the worst things in the world. Right. But you want to see a firefighter in tears in their eyes. Let them see when a kid gets hurt. Wow. Um, catch them when a kid gets hurt. And then you realize how big their hearts are. And so that for me was or how much they care about each other. Like, uh. We, um, we had this one, one of our fire tech consultants uh, showed me this documentary they made back when he was in Detroit and he called him his fire dad. He would point to this one gentleman. Now, this is a, this is a young white guy, uh, but his fire dad was his old brother, this old black gentleman uh, back there. And as soon as he started talking about him, his eyes get teary because he loves that man so much. Wow. He said he taught me about being a firefighter, taught me about being a man, taught me about how, you know, how to survive emotionally when you lose people and that lets so that's the thing that emotionally has been the most fun as an actor. The physicality is all great and fun, but 
you need to find a way to get that level and depth of emotion uh, that these men and women have to come out in the middle of all that action. And that's been the challenge. And that's been the most fun part is I think the writer set us up. And I feel like the entire cast does a beautiful job. Of well, the thing about the show, I call um, Station 19. I'm talking to J- interviewing Jason George, one of the stars of Station 19 on Thursday, March 11th. It returns 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on ABC. I tell the series is a tell it like it is series. You know, you have strong black dynamic character storylines, great uh, gay and lesbian transgender storylines. And mm-hmm. it plays itself out in a real world environment. You have under, you know, commitment, non-commitment. That's a lot of dynamics. You have family. In fact, in the season end, you had to deal with the death in your family and revealing that information out to your children. Talk about that. those those different when you had a table read or you going through all these characters and your character plays a major role and in, 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 in seamlessly has to associate itself with all these different lifestyles, these different uh, emotions, but, the, but keeping it real, though. That's what I really enjoy about the series Station 19. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a beautiful situation because it's what's happening more and more in television and film yes. in general, but mm-hmm. Shondaland was kind of right at the crest of that wave that mm-hmm. we're going to tell a diverse group of stories and make everybody realize that your story is not that different from my story. You mm-hmm. mean? Uh, and so the, the diversity that we have on screen is largely supported by the fact that they have diversity in the writer's room. Right. And diversity, you know I mean? I've never worked with more female directors, more directors of color, black directors, um, than I have since I've been in Shondaland. And so when you have that behind the scenes, that lets real authentic stories get told on screen. Right. And so when we get into that, it, it makes it, you know, it makes it really interesting and, 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 and uh, fun as an actor to play. It's a, it presents these challenges. And so we're able to tell all these different aspects that haven't always gotten much play on, you know, on television. I mean, the reality is, we, you know, there's a term in, uh, in, uh, in Black Hollywood uh, you know, I started my career as the BBS oftentimes, the black best friend. Right. You know, my job was to show up and, uh, and ask the white male lead, you know, hey, man, how was your day? Right. So he can talk about his love problems and mm-hmm. things going on in his life. And I mm-hmm. go, well, it's tough. And then that's that's my job. Mm-hmm. You know, and I collect my check and go home. But now everybody, everybody uh, has a real full life. And the right. fact that, you know, Shonda Rhimes is why they create these ensemble shows to make sure that everybody, and, and it also works great for an actor because, you know, I've got an episode that we're about to shoot starting this week mm-hmm. where I'm in almost every scene and I'm, I'm working every day. And then we'll have an episode, two episodes from now where I'll show up for two days. Right. And we, because they rotate, it means I get right. to, I as an actor get to have a life outside of the show. Um, I get to be with my family, my kids. And then I'm like, by the way, kids, you're not going to see me this week. Dad's going to go to work at six o'clock in the morning, come home at eight or nine o'clock. And you're not going to see me much because I'm in deep this one. But then a couple of weeks after that, you know, they get to see me and I get to be around. So they, uh, that diversity creates a big atmosphere, big ensemble, and they get to tell a lot of different kinds of stories, which is what I think America needs right now is they need to hear some of the stories that haven't been told all those underrepresented communities that have been dying to see themselves and hear their own stories told uh, now are starting to get told more and more on television, especially on shows like Station 19. Well, Station 18, when it comes back, like I said earlier, you know, that uh, in the season finale, you know, it's a dramatic one. You know, uh, I guess it was a sexual trafficking situation that was broken up in the mm-hmm. end. Uh, the police showed up. I didn't really want to show up. And, you know, uh, my man Miller, he got arrested. And then uh, Sullivan, he hit, I think he hit a cop. 
He got arrested. And then we at that world that we in today, kind of like the George Floyd world that we're in, where cops don't have an understanding of people of color or people. Was that was that important to see that play out on your show? Because like I was telling everybody, Station 18, you want to see a real slice of life as it plays out and character relationships. In other words, we all can get along if we understand each other's values. That's that that finale was powerful to me. How is that leading to the premiere episode March 11th? Oh, we're going to pick up with that storyline. I mean, that storyline is going to travel through for a little bit uh, mm-hmm. of the difficulties with it. I mean, we did a, we did a story last season where uh, we were all, all the firefighters were meeting with a, a therapist, uh, right. a psychiatrist, and we were talking out our, our problems. And you find out that recently Ben had a scenario where a police officer pulled him out of the car and made him lay face down on the ground. Right. Until uh, he got his wallet out and that sort of thing based on nothing, based on nothing that Ben had done. Uh, scenario that, you know, most black people, certainly, you know, I as a black man have lived a couple of different times, um, you know, driving while black. And it was a powerful episode because the whole idea, the reason why that was powerful for me to do and why I really want to make sure that it happened was that people want to say, well, George Floyd was doing, was he writing a bad check? Was he, well, he was in the middle of committing a crime. Well, if he hadn't been someplace doing something with the wrong people, and I'm like, no, here's what you're not hearing. It doesn't matter who you were with, what yes. you were doing. Driving while black can happen to anybody, yes. including a firefighter, surgeon, uh, anesthesiologist. Right. You know, one of the good ones mm-hmm. because they don't know who you are right. until they until they get to know you. And mm-hmm. right now, you're just a black man in the car. Right. So that that kind of that level of judgment was important to show that who you are and what you are about and all your accomplishments. They can't see that up front, um, and so they can't see the firefighter outfit. But then, but then, uh, credit to uh, Akriete Anadwan, who uh, plays Dean Miller. Oak, mm-hmm. uh, everybody calls him, who plays mm-hmm. Dean Miller. He really helped push and say, we, that storyline can't just be a one-off. And so that's one of the Thank reasons you. why, and God bless Krista Vernoff, our showrunner. She's really about making great entertainment, but also trying to make people think, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. educate a little bit. You're going to have to deal with these issues. So they brought it back, and that's where you have uh, you know, these firefighters who are out of uniform getting treated some kind of way by police officers. You know, and and this, it, I think they do a beautiful job of making a balance because there's the one cop who is not having any of it. You know, you know, and puts the you know slams Dean on the the hood of the car, and then there's another cop who you know has a problem with it, but he's not the superior officer, so he just kind of goes along. You know, and, but it uh, all started that when they slammed when they slammed the young girl's mother on the hood of the car. That's what that's what exactly. just got it all triggered. Treating a woman like that, you know, in public exactly. like that. That's but what is really it treating a woman like that and treating her like that because you don't necessarily believe the situation is yes. that you yes. don't give the credibility to them when she says my child is stuck in there. You know, right. and uh, and the show's done a lot of different things. I mean, like you know, there's an episode where uh, Chandra Wilson, uh, who plays Bailey, my character's wife, on the show. Uh, it was a beloved character, phenomenal actress. They did a few episodes where she had a heart attack mm-hmm. and the doctors are not trying to tell her, you're, you're not you're not having a heart attack. And she's like, I am a chief of surgery at Graceville <laughs> Memorial. I know what's going on because black women present heart attacks, heart mm-hmm. problems different mm-hmm. than white men. Right. Uh, different than white folks. And, she, and it's like your assumptions of me are different because and they just did an episode on Grays where they did it. Same thing with a. Uh, an Asian American character because there are there are health problems that present differently mm-hmm. in the Asian American community, you know, and it's and just hit they hit those issues that there's you know 
a million different, you know, sexual aids for men, but mm-hmm. that many for women mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, who's in charge makes the rules. So they're just trying to point up all those different things. So, but they fought to bring that storyline back about the social justice right. in this show. Right. And uh, use sex trafficking because, you know, and I've been pushing for that storyline on the show wow. for a while. And, it's, and they want to write everything. They want to put everything in the show. So it can't necessarily fit in right away. But, you know, I remember I was having a meeting with uh, Karen Bass, Congresswoman Karen Bass. Mm-hmm. And she said, listen, you all need to put this on the show. This is a few years ago. And she mm-hmm. said, you know, that the number one trafficked human being in America is a 14 year old black girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if those stats have changed since we first talked. I pray that they have, mm-hmm. but believe that young black girls are still the um, among, the, if not the most trafficked human beings on the planet. And so the writers wrote that into the show. And it, for me, that's that's why I'm so proud of the show is that they're going to have those conversations and make folks at home get their entertainment. You're going to get your entertainment. You're going to get your sexy. You're going to have your feels and clutch right. your pearls. But you're also going to have a conversation about does that really happen? And the answer right. is yes. Yes, right. it's happened. And it's happening in neighborhoods you would not expect in places you would not assume. Uh, and typically, you know, America doesn't care as much when they're, you know, darker skinned uh, young girls. When they're blonde hair and blue eyed, we, they stay on the news. Yeah. Um, but when they're, you know, young black women, typically not as much. And then that's reflected in the fact that the cop doesn't believe them when they tell them that there's young girls being trapped. And so it's all these assumptions and biases that people have. Right. And it's not about saying anybody's a horrible, evil human being out the box inherently, but it's about saying you have bias and you got to recognize that because if you can't recognize your bias, then you're, you're not helping me. Wow. You, in fact, can be part of my problem. He plays the character, Dr. Ben Warren. Now he's playing firefighter. Ben Warren on Station 19, Thursday, March 11th. They're coming back on ABC. Uh, Jason George, I always call you Ben. Uh, Jason George. <laughs> and now, right. I answer to it all. I, answer, cool. look, now, I grew up in a family. I got, I got, I'm one of three boys, Johnny, Jason, Jarvis. And so I answer to anything. <laughs> j- 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 you know I'm talking to you. I'm absolutely, like, yeah, absolutely. I know. So if my you say man, Ben, I got you. Hey, my man, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Tell your story because, you know, I, I air on a lot of HBCU school affiliates and, uh, and just a uh, just a growing market of being able to let black people see real black people tell their stories and their rise and being consistently part of the process. And you're part of the process because I want to bring you back on because you have a lot of stuff you do with unions in the community. But more importantly, they got you on there to talk about the premiere. And I wanted to make sure I did that correctly about Station 18. This Thursday, March 11th, make sure you guys don't miss it because you won't miss this guy. He's on TV all the time. He'll be dancing between Grey's Anatomy. He'll be doing Station 19. He's a great actor. He's a great friend. Jason George, thanks for coming on Money Making Conversation. Oh, appreciate it, man. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. I'll come back anytime. We will be right back with more Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald, the host of Money Making Conversation. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award is a celebration of black men who are making a difference in our community by empowering others to reach their life goals. From civic leaders, businessmen, activists, celebrities, and everyday dads, the Cafe Mocha Swag Award winner this week is... Dr. Sean Woodley. A graduate of Hampton University, Dr. Sean Woodley has dedicated his professional career to education. He is the architect behind the educator movement, Teach, Hustle, Inspire. He has written the best-selling book, MC Means Move the Class, How to Spark Engagement and Motivation to Urban and Culturally Diverse Classrooms. I firmly believe that education, it's a key that can unlock so many doors in so many different directions. We need to be sure 
that the bright young scholars in the four walls of these classrooms across this country are being exposed so that they have something to shoot for and education can do that. The Cafe Mocha Swag Award represents men who have strength, whose wisdom is assertive, and who is genuine in their spirit. Welcome back to Money Making Conversations with your host, Rashawn McDonald. My next guest is Sister Soldier. She is a New York Times bestselling author. Her debate book, The Coldest Winter Ever, sold over a million copies and introduced the world to the quick-witted, bold, fashionable, erotic, soulful, and undeniable complicated character of Winter Santiago. The sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever, Life After Death, is out now. You can buy it right now. Previously, as you know, the background on Sister Soldier, recording artist with the hip hop group Public Enemy. She is best known as a political activist, educator of urban youth from underserved communities, a graduate of Rutgers University. Her first book sold, like I said earlier, over a million copies. It was recognized in Essence, Emerge Magazine when it was a bestseller. In 2018, it was included in PBS Great American Read program and currently has over a million copies in print. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation to discuss her new book, Coldest Winter Ever, Life After Death, Sister Soldier. Peace. Thank you for welcoming me. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, I, I'm happy. You know, this is uh, we coming into a new year with a fantastic book. Uh, 2020 was a was a, a people year for a lot of people. How did it affect you? And uh, did you write the book in 2020, or you started it prior to that? In 2020, I wrote this the book. book in 2020. Okay, definitely in mm-hmm. that year. And uh, 2020 was a very difficult year. I think all around the world. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody will forget 2020 mm-hmm. uh, on every on every level. Personally, won't forget it. Politically, will never forget it. <laughs> Financially, won't forget right. it. <laughs> you know, culturally, won't forget it. So it, it was a very uh, difficult year for everybody. With that being said, when you work in a show, a book is complicated at this because there are a lot of complex characters, but a lot of familiar characters. And a lot of people have been waiting on this book, the sequel to this book, because Winter's mm-hmm. character, you know, in the, in the previous book, they wanted to know what happened to the character. Tell us about that journey of writing the book. You say you wrote it during 2020, but I thought that was a thought process prior to 2020, laying the chapters, laying the storylines. Talk about that. Walk us through those steps. Okay. Well, actually, uh, when the Coldest one ever first published in 1999, right. which I really think is 1998, but in 1999 is, is the number that everybody wants to go with. So that's fine. When it first published, I wanted to write a sequel, you know, immediately. I began thinking about a sequel immediately. But then I thought about the fact that the coldest winter ever is a cautionary tale. Right. It was something not to glorify the drug lifestyle, but to expose it and show how it how drugs destroys the whole family ultimately. So because the coldest winter ever ended with uh, Winter Santiago being convicted and sentenced to a mandatory minimum of 15 years, I wanted that to resonate in our community for people to really feel, you know, the absence of her presence or the absence of the presence of someone that you really love or you really miss. Because that's what happens in the real world when our loved ones get incarcerated. And it's serious. 
So for everybody that was out there calling it the drug game, you know, glorifying it and glamorizing it, I wanted to make it clear that it's not a game. It's a death style, not a lifestyle. And that the whole family can get destroyed once you get involved in it. Well, that's important because we do have a family here. You know, you have a, so like I said, I have I didn't read the first book. I read the second book, Outstanding uh, Read from cover to cover. I generally, I'm going to tell you how I read books. I, I get up in the morning with an interview on a, a writer about the book. I read it the day of. And uh, I, I got up at two o'clock in the morning and I read it and it was like, uh, it was, it was it was very colorful. It was very um, the characters. I always like to say uh, were were, were, you, were were relatable. I thought, and I thought because of the fact that you know they were emotionally driven, they were passionate, they were tied to a belief, and they were honest people. And I think what, what shines the most in your in your book, and it's in all your previous writing. This book is called Life After Death. The honesty of the characters. Talk, walk us through the steps and the honesty of the characters. And are you reaching from certain people that you know, or are these just your imagination? These characters are definitely characters from my imagination. And I think the key to writing these kinds of characters for any author or aspiring author is that you have to be able to uh completely distance mm -hmm. yourself from the characters that you create. You can't look at it as you want to control the character or you want to control the character's voice, the character's desires, whatever the case. So, for example, Winter Santiago is very different from Sister Soldier. Uh, how Winter would answer a question is completely different from how I, the author, would answer the question. So I can't start trying to slip my personality into her personality without corrupting the character. If I want the character to be genuine, I have to have let the character have a life of its own, if you will. So for each and every character in the, in the books that I write, I don't let Sister Soldier interfere in the character, no matter what. Well, that's, that's important to hear. But let me the, the, when they, when they sent over the information, I'm reading about the the background. It was saying although Soldier, is, you know, this is a nonfiction and Winter Winter San Diego is fiction. Both said she and I are real. That's what just stated in the bio. And in fact, fictitious Winter is realer than you. Talk about that when you say that, when you say, even though you said these are made up characters, the statement is that she's realer. When you say realer, what do you mean when you say that? What I mean is that she uh, uh, is she's a representation right. of probably, you know, a million other young ladies in the hood and in the suburbs and the rural areas across the whole United States of America. And and. It becomes obvious that she's a representation because of how great the love for her is, uh, because of how high the sales of her story is. Mm -hmm. All of that is uh, is obvious. When I first wrote the book, the amount of hundreds and then thousands of letters I got about Winter Santiago made it clear to me that she is real. And real as personified uh, in in the lives of real uh, people in our neighborhoods 
who feel she's real because she represents their sentiments or their emotions or their challenges or their lifestyle or, you know, or, or their fantasies, right. fantasies of, of who they would like to be. You know, interesting thing when I, because when I, you're a performing artist. And, yes. uh, and I, I was blessed in my life, you know, a stand-up comedian. And I uh, got to experience heights of Def Comedy Jam performing at Madison Square Garden. And that live that live performance is really filled with adrenaline. You know, mm. from a standpoint as a writer, and I'm a sitcom writer. I've written dramas. I've written reality shows and things like that. So that's a different level and uh, from when I was a performing artist as a stand-up comedian. And and because it wasn't as raw, and as a and as a performing artist, and you're out there rapping, that's a raw form of entertainment. When you're out there writing, what compels you and drives your passion as a writer, Sister Soldier? Uh, I think that uh, myself as a writer is is the top. Right, is the top. In other words, uh, as a music performing artist or anything else, really. Uh, a writer clearly tops all of that uh, because I have a very vast imagination. I have thousands of stories in my head. I love the whole process of researching, uh, reading, studying, uh, traveling the world, learning new cultures, new languages, experiencing new things, and being able to draw from all of those things at once. And it's a real challenge. And when you're creating a character, it gives you uh, a greater respect for for God than you may have ever had because you say, wow, it takes all of this energy and all of this imagination and all of this effort and all of this passion and all of this soul to create this one inanimate character. Right. And here the the higher power, the maker of all souls has created each and every one of us and each and every one of us has something unique about us and each of us has a backstory. It just makes you say, well, alhamdulillah, how great God is. You know, it was really, it was really great talking to you. I want to thank you for taking the time to discuss your book that's out now, Life After Death, the sequel to the coldest winter, winter ever, and winter being the, the lead character in your uh, in your novel series. You know, you said something earlier. We was talking about drugs, and you was talking about that lifestyle, and you your goal was not to glorify it. That's why right. she went to jail fifteen years and, and served every year of that in prison. And that's very important in your storytelling dynamics. And so when I when I look at the reality of what life is, your education, you know, your degree, graduate of Rutgers University, tell us how important that is and how important is that part of your legacy when you're talking to young people about your career and you're talking about your career as a writer now? Well, I think the university level is important, uh, not for the same reasons that maybe other people think is important. I think it's important because like for somebody like me who came from the Bronx right. and then uh, came from the poor suburbs, you know, after the Bronx, uh, going to a university and seeing the facility itself 
is a very amazing experience. Going out on the yard and seeing all of the organizations that the university offers and realizing that anything you ever imagined in your life, you can learn and master in a university is a very uh wonderful feeling. So if you're standing there, you just arrived, it's your first week on campus, you can join an organization to row a boat. If that's your right. thing, that's you want to row a boat, you want to play the piano, you want to be in the science club, you want to do experiments, you want to uh, jump out of airplanes, you want to shoot rifles, whatever you want to do. And on a university level, uh, in a major university, it's an opportunity that's there and all of the resources are there. I spent my whole young life wishing that I owned a piano. Right. And when I got to the university and I went to the music, uh, the campus for music, I went into a building and every single room had a piano. Wow. And because I was a student and I had a student ID, I could access that piano. I could master that piano if I studied it. So I just think universities are amazing and that young people should strive to get to the university level, not for the sake of prestige or arrogance or even for just social activity, but because the sky is the limit with expanding your mind, mastering some skills and talents and being able to own and control your own business. And that's important. And I, I wanted to make sure I talked about your, your, your college education because, you know, it, it changed my life. You know, my degree is in mathematics and my minor in sociology. And, and I, like you, I went to college and it changed me. And it, and it changed me in so many ways because it showed me in so many avenues of what I could be. And Absolutely. when you promote the value of that, it's, it's, it's incredible. But I, I know we have a few minutes left. And uh, the amazing thing about a novel is that you don't really want to tell the story because you want people to read the story. Can you uh, can you tell us about some of the characters that have carried over into the sequel that you are building upon in the uh, sequel Life After Death? Yes, in Life After Death, you will see, of course, Winter Santiago. She's the main, she's on the main stage in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see Midnight, of course, because whenever you see Winter, you have to see Midnight. Come on now. Come and on now. And <laughs> you will see Winter's sister, Porsche Santiago. Mm -hmm. And she has a book of her own and she is quite dynamic, if I should say so myself. And uh, you'll see the man that Porsche ended up being married to. Um, you will see Ricky Santiago. Oh, that's a big one because you know everybody loves him. Mm -hmm. And you'll see even Lana, glimpses of Lana Santiago. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's all of the characters that you met in the coldest winter ever. Mm -hmm. And for some of the characters like Winter's Friends, in life after death, you'll see more right. insight into with into Winter's friendships and the characters, the same characters from the coldest winter ever, but after 15 years of serving uh, a prison yeah. sentence. Like you say, you're going to look different, walk different, talk different, and it's because the life they live now is different. An incredible yeah. read. I'm just going to let you know I read it uh, and, uh, and I will recommend it to my friends. I'm going to put it in my newsletter, put it on my social media. Uh, a great novel. You're, you, you know, you're, the blessing of this conversation I'm having with you, Sister Soldiers, that, uh, you know, you're a transcending person. You know, you, like you said, you come from the Bronx. You know, you're, you're, you're happily married. You have a child. You know, you're living a life 
of, uh, of that you want to live. And I feel as a writer, as a successful author, just tell me this. Uh, you know, we, we do these things creative. I was fortunate to be with Steve Harvey and we did uh, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. And nobody told us we would sell books and we sold three million copies. How did it feel to realize you had a bestseller on your hands? Well, I'm going to tell you, I like the reaction of the people yes. in the neighborhoods mm -hmm. that I grew up in. So I like uh, if I walk down the street in Harlem, you know, I hear people whispering, oh, oh, there, there she go. It's mm -hmm. the girl. Mm -hmm. What girl? Even though I'm a grown, mature woman, right? <laughs> what girl? The girl that wrote the book. Right. What book? The book. The mm -hmm. book. She wrote the book. Right. <laughs> and, and so I love that kind of feeling because it's a neighborhood that's familiar to me. It's people mm -hmm. that's familiar to me. And it's even better than any award or any, you know, official kind of congratulations that you can get when you've seen your own people totally engaged in the words that you've written on the page. Well, it's fantastic words. And thank you for allowing me to speak to you and have an honest conversation about a brilliant writer, a brilliant artist, and an amazing talent. And keep transcending in the world with your colorful style of writing and your, and your activism. Thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations. Thank you for welcoming me and thank you for putting me in your newsletter. <laughs> Absolutely, girlfriend. You the thing. You, as they say, you are the one. She the one. She the one. Right there. The book. The book. That's right. The name of that book is, you know, Life After Death by Sister Soldier. Again, I want to thank everybody thank who comes to Money Making Conversation. If you want to see more interviews or hear more interviews, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I am your host. 